Hello and welcome to The Planet Today. It is Friday, January 20th, 2023. Here on TPT, we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy every single Friday with bonus interviews on Mondays and a shorter episode on the first Monday of each month. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here with producer and co-host Nick Janusa. Nick, how's it going? Buddy, it's pretty good. Pretty good, my dude. How about you? Congested. It's uh, <laughs> It's been too long since the last time I was sick on this show. It's been like two months. Yes. So uh, the, the podcasting gods had to come in and give me a little cold this weekend. But yep. no, we're good. We're good. It's not anything serious. Just stuffy. Exactly. As long as you're good for your birthday, we're, we're all set. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, get this out of the way now. That way in two weeks, I'm ready to not have a cold. I'll be immune to the yes. common cold. I think that's how that exactly. works. Exactly. Dude, you know what's funny? I always am like that. I'm like, oh, if I get sick now, I won't be sick by the time like whatever this hits or like, and that's just so stupid to think about. Cause like I've heard of people getting strep throat and COVID like all in the same week. So yeah, in theory, you can definitely get sick very close between getting sick at different times. So, uh, you're right. <laughs> I'm not going to think of it that way. And I'm going to go into this, uh, this week saying, I'm glad I'm sick now. Exactly. You're getting the sick out now. Yeah. Uh, Nick and I are not doctors. Nick and I are not epidemiologists. So <laughs> ignore us when we talk about that, but stay tuned. We got a fun show for you starting now. Time for our quick hits for the week. And the first one is by Jeff Brady of NPR, who writes, Exxon climate predictions were accurate decades ago. Still, it's so doubt. We mentioned this last week at the close of the show. Um, I was angry after reading the headline. That's what I do. That's my brand is I get I get mad at ExxonMobil. Today, we're going to tell everyone why we are mad at ExxonMobil again. And it's not just Exxon. Let me start this off by saying that it's, it's most, if not all, major oil corporations. Probably had a really good grip on climate science, but Exxon's the biggest one in the U.S. So me and Nick being based in the U.S., it's easy for us to get angry at this U.S.-based company. First half of the show, it's going to be frustrating, but the back half, much more positive. Definitely stick around and don't let my, my angry tirade dissuade you. <laughs> so Exxon scientists predicted how much the planet would warm as a result of burning fossil fuels over the course of several decades of research. Despite this, Exxon has led the climate misinformation campaign over the last three decades that casts doubt on climate change being human-caused and the science behind our planet's rising temperatures. Journalists have been uncovering Exxon's in-house research over the last few years, and it showed that Exxon knew climate change was both happening and human-caused. Exxon's research was found to be at least as accurate as the research done by governments and independent academics. And in some cases, Exxon's research was actually more accurate Exxon and the fossil fuel industry as a whole are currently part of several lawsuits in the U.S. that claim they misled the public on the harmful effects of burning fossil fuels. And they did. There's no denying it at this point. They did mislead the public. 
Now it's just a matter of whether or not they will be held accountable. And to me, accountability looks a lot like making them pay a buttload of money to help developing nations transition to cleaner energy faster. An ExxonMobil spokesperson named Todd Spittler wrote that those who talk about how Exxon and New are wrong in their conclusions, meaning that Exxon's understanding of climate science developed as the greater scientific community did. It's hard to believe that that statement is truthful when Exxon's data was at least as good as the rest of the scientific communities. And yet we don't see climate scientists out there leading a push to convince the public that climate change is fake or that climate change is not human caused or that climate change is exaggerated. Yeah. All of those buzzwords that we've heard for the last, what, three decades at this point, you know, that would all be ExxonMobil doing those things. That's Shell. That's BP. That's all of those big oil companies that's telling us, hey, this whole climate change thing, not a big deal. Buy our oil. No, that's misinformation. And now we have research from Exxon that's been brought to the public light that says they did know how serious climate change was going to be. Yeah. And they still went out and spent millions upon millions of dollars to make the public say, hey, what if this whole climate change thing is a hoax? Why should we care? And delayed decades of progress that we could have had if they just owned up to it in 1977 when this was first brought to their attention. Yeah, yeah, it's unbelievable. This research should help the 20 plus lawsuits brought by states and local governments for damages caused by climate change. While fossil fuel consumption rose and Exxon's profits did too, our planet and our people paid the price. Several governments want to correct that, as they should. They should. You're right. And you know what the sad thing is? I have no faith that this is going to work out. I just do not see any accountability for mm-hmm. Exxon, especially here in the States where you have a lot of politicians who are answering the calls from Exxon and saying, yeah, sure, we'll vote against making it easier to develop solar or to develop wind or to yeah. you know have plug-in hybrid or electric vehicles more accessible to people. Yeah, just send me some money. That's no problem. We have so many people in power who just don't care about the things that matter because it's a lot easier for them to just have their pockets lined. Yeah, this is a tale as old as time, I feel like. Like we've had so many discussions on this show about oil companies doing the wrong thing and not being held accountable for it. This is another situation. You know, you could say like Oh, you know, like they knew about it in the 70s. Like we shouldn't hold the company liable because of like the actions they took in the 70s. Like the people aren't there anymore, blah, 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 blah. But like you still could have done it in the 90s. You still could have done it in the thousands. You still could have done it in the 2010s. And to like continuously be peddling the same stuff over and over again and just hoping that we buy it and hoping that we just continue to just like think that you guys are like the best company in the world and that you're so green and good for the environment is just completely wild to me. Yeah. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. You're a hundred percent right. And it's a fair question to ask, like, should we hold somebody accountable for something that happened almost 50 years ago? That's not our place to say. And it doesn't matter because you are 100% correct that every single executive that has walked through those doors at Exxon, at Shell, whomever, mm-hmm. you know, they have made the conscious decision to continue to mislead the public exactly since 1977. It's not like it was something that was a one-off thing 50 years ago. So sure, fair question. And, and you're right. It doesn't matter. Yeah. And in this case, 
I think that this isn't necessarily the system not working. I think this is like what our current economic system globally was designed to do. Mm -hmm. And it's going to take a real systematic shift to get us off of fossil fuels and get us into more of a green economy, a circular economy, whatever term you want to use. We need a shakeup. And it, it needs to be big and sweeping because, frankly, just having ExxonMobil pay for damages but continue to pump out fossil fuels isn't going to get us to net zero. It's not. No, you're right. And it's frustrating. And the next story we're going to get into is equally frustrating for me. But unfortunately, these are really important topics that came up in the last week. Yeah. And let's get right into that one. So this one is from CNN's Sana Noor Ha and Tila Rebain. And they write, UAE appoints oil company boss as president of COP28 climate conference. Alarming climate groups. The story, like I said, it's frustrating. And the only thing that I can really equate it to is if there was some large global anti-cigarette conference. And the president of this year's anti-cigarette conference was the Marlboro Man or Joe Camel. (laughs) Like, I just, I don't (laughs) get what we're doing here. So Sultan Al-Jabir, CEO of Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, is going to oversee COP28 when it begins on November 30th in Dubai. On the positive side, and there is a positive here, he serves as the UAE's climate change envoy and is the founder of the renewable energy company Mazdar. On the negative side, are we really going to believe that the climate envoy for one of the world's largest oil producers is anti-fossil fuels? Yeah, unlikely. Uh, The UAE has pledged to reach net zero by 2050, which would require it to remove as many emissions from the atmosphere as it emits. That will be tough to do since it's an oil giant. The appointment has caused backlash from environmental groups, some of which claim that this undermines the possibility of achieving any meaningful climate pledges. Others have said that if Al Jabir is serious about this, he needs to step down from his oil industry job. Something the article mentions is that this kind of just undermines the legitimacy of COP28. Yeah. You know, I, I thought it was bad last year when we talked about COP27 being presented by Coca-Cola, where it's like, hey, this is this year's big environmental climate change conference presented to you by the biggest plastic polluter in the world. <laughs> yeah. Now we're talking about an oil giant as the president of an anti-oil conference. And essentially, that's what a climate change conference is. It's a conference to get us off oil, get us off coal, get us off fossil fuels. So to me, this is a massive conflict of interest. Yeah, it's, it's almost funny. And I'm, I'm really leaning on almost. Yeah, like not funny, haha, funny, like I can't believe this. Yeah, like I can't believe what I'm seeing here. Um, But this makes the issue of COP27 having over 600 fossil fuel lobbyists attending almost seem minor when the president himself is literally an oil, an oil CEO. To be fair, Al Jabir has played a major role in Abu Dhabi's clean energy vehicle. He still serves as chairman of Mazdar and recently took a stake in renewables and hydrogen, according to Robin Mills, CEO of the energy consulting firm Kamar Energy. Yeah, and and with that point, maybe he's following profitable industries. Fossil fuels, for a long time, were a profitable industry. So, sure, you know, if if that was his reasoning was money, sure. When I say that fossil fuels were a profitable industry, and we say that renewables are a profitable industry, that's important to say that 
you know, we should phase out fossil fuels. We should ramp up renewables. Unfortunately, my issue is that for the short term, fossil fuels are still profitable. They're less profitable than they were. They're going to be less profitable than renewables over the next two decades, for sure. If you're a long-term investment firm, then renewables make sense. But if you're looking for a short-term profit, you can still get that with fossil fuels. It's not like there's no money to be made in fossil fuels right now. For So for him to just all of a sudden not care about his own oil company, even though he's investing in other things, I think it's double dipping. And I just frankly don't see a way for, for this not to be a conflict of interest for him to still be on the board of an oil giant while leading a conference about phasing out oil. Yeah. I mean, it's again, funny because like, how could you have the global nation's best interest in mind? How can you have, you know, the people who are Island nations who like literally their, their water levels are rising. They're not going to be able to live on the island that they live on right now in like five to 10 years. How can you continue to just be greedy and try and make as much money as you possibly can while there are people like that? And yeah. to, to me, putting someone as the president of the next COP28 is laughable and it's something that should just not happen. Yeah. And, and you're right. And, and if the answer is getting him to step down from his oil company and he's willing to do that, then, you know, I'll take back some of the things I said here. I, I would be happy to be wrong in this, this scenario. Step down, just focus on, on your clean energy stuff, your hydrogen stuff, your clean vehicles. Focus on that. Focus on, on getting the planet off fossil fuels. And we have a conversation here. But right now, when you're double dipping and investing in, in renewables, but also the CEO of an oil company. Yeah. How are you going to tell other nations leaders that they need to phase down fossil fuels when you aren't doing it yourself? Exactly. You have no place. Right. Agreed. All right. Nick and I are going to take a quick break. Thank you for sticking with us through that. That was uh, not the most fun 15 minutes we've had on this show here. Promise the back half is going to be a little bit more uplifting. Uh, Stay tuned. Today's episode of The Planet Today is brought to you by Vala Alta. Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance, daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT. Welcome back to the planet today, folks. And next up, single-use plastic. Takeaways face ban in October from Georgina Renard of BBC. 
The English government announced a ban later this year that will require takeaways, restaurants, and cafes to stop using single-use plastic cutlery, plates, and bowls. Instead, there's a push for them to switch to biodegradable options that won't contribute to landfills after their use. The British takeaway campaign told BBC News that businesses need more support to implement this ban. And the concern is that smaller restaurants will be forced to pass the higher cost on to consumers. England uses roughly 2.7 billion single-use cutlery items each year and 721 million single-use plates. Making this switch will cost roughly 22 cents more per item. So it kind of tiptoes the line between protecting the environment and supporting small businesses. It's one of those things where I think cutting some government subsidies towards fossil fuels, for example, and subsidizing these biodegradable packages and biodegradable cutlery, that would do a lot of good for the environment, for the people, and for the small businesses that are going to be impacted by this rule. Yeah, and another option the article brings up are reusable tins that customers can bring in to use for takeaways. It's less convenient, but better for the environment. And when getting takeout, convenience is often king. Yeah, and that's the problem here. You know, you're you're asking people to have to bring something in, have to go out of their way to do something when, I'm going to generalize here, but I feel like when people get takeout food, it's because they want a night off from cooking, from cleaning, whatever it is. Yeah. In this case, you're asking them to do one more step. What I will say is this reminds me of, you know, the, the restaurant just salad where you can go and, and they sell a reusable bowl. You get a free protein addition added to your salad if you bring that in. Or, you know, if I go to get peanut butter at a grocery store, you can just bring in a reusable container, fill it up and then weigh it based on that. So I don't think it's unheard of to have people bring in these reusable tins, whether it's for a grocery item or something like a salad or something like just any sort of takeout pasta. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think you're right. It's It comes down to convenience for people. They're not going to go out of their way to do anything really, um, mm-hmm. especially when it comes to like food, I feel like. So incentivizing them where you can, that's definitely a big one. I think where you can take off, like let's say five bucks off, you know, your yeah. each meal or something like that. I know that's a, kind of a lot, but just incentivizing consumers to to be more um, envir- environmentally friendly. Yeah is probably the way to go on this one. Yeah, and I, I know you're going to get into this, but it's like it's like when you go to 7-Eleven for coffee. I'm pretty sure if you bring in a reusable cup, you get a dollar off. You know, something as simple as that, yeah. it, it incentivizes people to be more responsible, like you said. Yeah, and in that case, people love their own coffee mug. Yeah. Like their own coffee cup. Like if they have like one that they take in the car, like I know my dad, my mom, like they used to like commute and stuff to the city, whatever. That coffee cup, like if it was not clean... At the right time, my dad would go nuts. <laughs> so yeah, that, that's a scenario where it could work. I guess. Yeah. Um, but the article talks about how customers can be put off by extra steps. But once it becomes a routine, people are generally happy to use reusable cups. Yeah, exactly. You know, just like you were saying with your dad, it's it's an extra step. But once it's your routine, like he's probably pissed when he, he doesn't have his reusable cup. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. All right, let's move on to our next one, and it is titled Warning of Unprecedented Heat Waves as El Nino Set to Return in 2023 by Damian Carrington of The Guardian. All right, it's going to be hot this year. That's that's the number one takeaway from this article. Um, it could be the first year that it reaches 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming, thanks in part to an El Nino climate pattern later this year. 
2016 was the hottest year on record and it was also driven by a major El Nino event. So we're not sure how hot it's going to get exactly. We'll have a better idea later in the year and we'll get into this later in this discussion, but just know it's going to be a hot one. Carrington writes, it is part of a natural oscillation driven by ocean temperatures and winds in the Pacific, which switches between El Nino, its cooler counterpart La Nina, and neutral conditions. The last three years have seen an unusual run of consecutive La Nina events. So even with those cooler La Nina events, it's been hot. Imagine what it's going to be like this year when it's supposed to be hot. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Can't imagine. 2023 is forecast to be hotter than 2022, which was the fifth or sixth hottest year on record, depending on which global data set you look at. Human-caused greenhouse gas emissions have caused 1.2 degrees of warming. But this could be the first time we see that 1.5 degree number, which now has about a 50-50 chance of happening in the next five years, according to Adam Scaife of the UK Met Office. Projections are looking like a major El Nino event could make the heat felt in 2021 or 2022 feel almost mild, which is alarming for a number of reasons. But the main one that I want to bring up is that hotter than average temperatures feel hot. Major El Ninos bring in hotter temperatures than even the average hotter year. Yeah, and we'll have a better idea of how hot this El Nino will get by about June, because it could end up being moderate instead of as severe as it looks it might be. Either way, this is an El Nino year, so we should expect it to be hotter than average. Yeah, you know, it's it's an unfortunate side effect of, of climate change where we kept commenting, man, it's hot this summer, and then... Yeah. Last year. Man, it's hotter than it was last summer. Those were yeah. cool years. You know, that's the scary thing is that yeah. those times where we spent saying this is one of the hottest years on record, those were during La Nina years where it's supposed to be cooler water from the oceans and cooler air from the oceans blowing right. in and cooling off the land atmosphere. And it just wasn't doing that because it was so hot everywhere. So this year, you know, hopefully it's more moderate than it looks like it could be, but it's going to be a really hot year. Yeah. How many stories this past summer did we have about heat? I feel like it was every single week and even last year too, like, or the year before that, I'm sorry. Um, so many heat stories this summer. I'm praying that we don't get that many, but you just know with hotter temperatures becomes loss of life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, more people having heart problems, heart issues, just general respiratory issues. Yeah. So this is, um, it's not fun to think about, you know, it's not fun to think about at all. No, and it, it impacts water availability. It impacts food security. Mm-hmm. It, it's going to have yep. a major impact on whether it's crops, animals, people, water, Climate change Absolutely. really is just this this umbrella that impacts everything. It's exhausting sometimes. And, you know, I, I hope that I hope we don't get to a point where these these stories of it being hot, we become desensitized to it. Yeah. Yeah. Like it should be alarming. It should be reason to get off our ass and do something. And I hope it doesn't turn into like the that Simpsons meme where it's like, this is the hottest year on record. This is the hottest year on record so far, you know, like this, this should be the thing that politicians and, and global world leaders rally around because we don't want it to be this hot. Yeah, absolutely. 
Absolutely. All right. What do you say we close this out with something a little bit more positive? Let's do it. Our last quick hit of the week is from Reuters. It says, U.S. Climate Envoy Kerry outlines carbon offset initiative for developing nations. John Kerry outlined a carbon offset plan this past weekend that is designed to help developing nations speed up their energy transition. The Energy Transition Accelerator, or ETA, was announced at COP27 last year and is working in partnership with the Bezos Earth Fund and the Rockefeller Foundation to get private capital invested. John Kerry said the goal is to create bankable deals that accelerate reduction of emissions. He's looking for high-integrity, accountable, transparent credit that can be used to put money on the table for developing nations. This is a way to counteract carbon offsets that allow companies to give more money to poorer countries to cut their own carbon outputs, while those richer nations continue to increase their emissions. In Kerry's plan, the only credits would be for closing down or transitioning existing fossil fuel facilities or for the actual deployment of renewables to replace fossil fuels. The article says that the Rockefeller Foundation published a joint statement with a preliminary list of members of the ETA high-level consultative group last weekend. Kerry said this would provide a broad cross-section of input and would add more participants. In other words, there's a list of groups willing to help finance this already, and this is only the beginning. You know, it's going to be super important to get private capital invested in climate change. And I say it's going to be as if it isn't already. It's very important already. But this is a fund that has private backing behind it. You know, it's not going to be enough for just the governments to put together a fund when you have private companies going out of their way to continue to make as much money off fossil fuels as possible. So in this case, when you have the nonprofit world, you have governments and you have the private industries all coming together to help finance whether in this case, you know, it's, it's a clean energy transition. In some cases, it's going to be water availability. In other cases, it's going to be, you know, actually building renewable energy pieces at a smaller scale, you know, make it cheaper for other places to get renewables. Whatever part of this transition it's going to be, we now have an avenue to get that backing from corporate finance. Yeah. Yeah, this is like... I think like the, not the final evolution, but like a fantastic evolution of a carbon offset like plan, because in the past, like we've talked about this on the show before, but where like companies or countries will continue to admit the same amount they've been doing, Mm -hmm. you know, the past five, 10 years, nothing changes. They just are doing, they're just giving money towards carbon offsets. Yeah. They're focused on the averages. That's not enough. Exactly. They're just focused on averages. And we're not going to get anywhere with that as a global nation. If everyone just continues to try and make as much money as they possibly can in the shortest amount of time, we're not going to get anywhere. We're just going to continue to go down this road of 1.5 of warming towards two. So a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And in this case, you know, it's great that we have John Kerry serving out of the U S and fighting this fight and getting people involved and getting people to invest. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a little corny, but I, I want to close this show out with one of my favorite quotes from Dr. Seuss's The Lorax, but it's, unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, things aren't going to get better. It's not. And in this case, John Kerry cares. You can tell he cares. We all clearly care if we're listening to this show. Mm-hmm. This is a, a worthwhile fight, and it's really encouraging to see that the money that's going to be required to help get us to net zero 
across the world. I'm not talking about just you know the U.S. I'm not talking about just major industrialized nations. As a world, getting to net zero, we need corporate funding. Yep. To avoid the situation we've run into, where you have you know your U.S., your EU, your Great Britain, your China, your Canada saying we'll pay a little bit, but we don't want to pay what others will say is our fair share for the years of damages. You know, in this case, having corporate finance backing this kind of just, it gets rid of that being a problem. Right, right. The whole thing with climate change and the global stage is like, it's a pain in the ass to have these big negotiations, these big climate conventions where you have to get 190 nations to agree on something because that's really hard to do for anything. Yeah. So in this case, anything that makes it easier or offsets those challenges, I'm for it. Yeah. Agreed. All right. That will do it for today's episode of TPT. We are going to be back on Monday for another interview. Yes. So Matt spoke with Graham Hill of the Carbonauts, a company that teaches people how to reduce their carbon footprints. Yeah, it was a very cool interview and uh, I'm excited for you to hear my conversation with Graham. Until then, go give the show a five-star rating and review wherever you can. Follow us at Planet Today Pod wherever you'd like. You can follow me too at Matt Norton. Nick Chenews produces our show and makes all the music you hear throughout it. Nick, where can people bump your tunes? You can bump it at soundcloud.com slash budlincape, and that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Go check me out, y'all. Our logo is made by Kaylee Vietz. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right here on Monday. Peace. Peace.